Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Day. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which took place on Friday evenings at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. on the Mythological African's Twitter space. last reference i'm going to make to the grims today by the way just to put it out there that someone somewhere has made you know a link between these stories and the robber bridegroom fairy tale and grims so out of the way obligatory grims reference we're going to focus completely on the different ways in which this this theme shows up in stories right and you know i'm not even kidding it shows up in stories from zambia it's all over cameroonian folklore it shows up in nigeria it shows up in Sierra Leone. And I'm willing to bet if we had, you know, a bunch of people from different African countries here, they would have a story of some kind um, in from their culture that speaks to this theme. Um, there is one from Chad, by the way, and that's the one that I retell in uh, The Runaway Princess and other stories. And I think we'll read the original story um, today. So welcome, everybody. Glad to have you here. I was just telling Sonia, I've been so discombobulated with this book and everything going on. It's nice to have, you know, a storytelling session again. But because I have to do promo for my book, I'm going to find a way to link it back. So if you guys see me linking everything I post back to my book somehow, just bear with me. You know, it's awful life, right? I have to do promo and all of that. So, but today we are focused on a particular theme, as we've been talking about, that shows up in a lot of folklore from different parts of the African continent. And I'm calling it the strange Utah theme. And I think I read that somewhere. I can't remember exactly. But it's this idea that you have a girl, usually very beautiful, desired by everybody, all the young men in the village and she refuses to marry anyone until this strange person shows up and she falls head like head over heels in love with the guy and against her better judgment and the recommendations of people in her family she you know decides to marry him and go with him and then usually ends up in trouble right quite often um this 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 person wants to kill her that's usually the story like they are um you know, some monster hiding and they have borrowed their body parts from different um, different animals or different beings in the forest. And, you know, as they move along, they shed these body parts and then their true form is revealed. And then the girl has to, you know, escape because otherwise she'll get eaten and everything. And I've put a thread in um, the, the space which links to a Yoruba version of the story, which is Come, which has been put into song by Angelique Kijo. And I know this song. This song, actually, I think I've talked about this on the timeline before. It was one of the few songs that I saw, I watched, I watched the video clip growing up, which, you know, was really the, the imagery, right? The song is Agolo. And um, I'll try to find a video of the song and link it um, when I do the summary. The imagery, everything about the song had, you know, it, very strong African references um, and it's it's a beautiful song. It's a danceable song. It's an exciting song. And it tells the story of this girl, right, who's very beautiful, 
refuses all her suitors, gets swept away by this guy, and then, you know, ends up in trouble. So there's a Yoruba version. Um, it shows up also in Amos Tutuola's The Vamwine Drinker. And if you know anything about The Vamwine Drinker, it's like a fever dream of Yoruba stories mishmashed together. And somehow this trope shows up. That just tells you how powerful this, this theme is um, in African storytelling. Amongst the Mende, it shows up. Um, I, read, I read, I was just reading about it in um, Roger Abrams' African Folklores. And Roger Abrams, I, if I remember correctly, was like a, a, an American ethnographer, anthropologist-type person. And he collected all these folktales. And he has a bit of an analysis of the story in his book. Um, and then you have the story being told from the perspective of three different storytellers. And what I love about this version is that it shows the versat- versatility of African storytelling, right? It's the same story but told in three completely different ways with three completely different endings. And um, it's a bit long, so we can't really read them, but I'll give, you know, top-level summaries. But what what I usually arrive at as I think about these stories is what are they trying to communicate, right? What are they trying to pass on? Because as we very well know, in African and global cultures, storytelling was a way in which people communicated their values, shared what was important to them, taught their children, you know, the things they needed to know about their history, their culture, what is expected of them and all of that. So in my, in my, um, when I heard this story growing up, right, in the Cameroonian versions of it, the underlying theme of it always seemed to be don't marry someone that your family doesn't approve of. And it makes sense, right? Because if you look at many African communities, there are very strict rules around who you can marry and, you know, the, the, the processes that have to be gone through before you can actually marry. And a lot of these uh, restrictions and stuff had to do with making sure that, you know, bloodlines didn't cross, you know, um, certain clans with certain totem animals couldn't mix with other totem animals. There were all these, you know, uh, parameters and rules and etiquettes that had to be followed. And in, in the context that I understood it growing up, it was that of, you know, don't marry someone that your family doesn't approve of. Because um, marriage was not just an issue of two people getting together. It was two families you literally merging bloodlines. And people took those things very seriously. So it was a cautionary tale, right? A cautionary tale saying, hey, if you marry some random stranger that your people don't know, if you end up in trouble, there is not a whole lot we can do to help you because we don't know these people. We don't understand them. We don't know their ways. And of course, taken to the most dramatic extreme to, to drive that point home. Um, one version of the story that I am familiar with um, shows up in a book by uh, Juliana Makuchi. She is a Cameroonian uh, folklorist, and she wrote a very, very great uh, collection of folk tales. It's called uh, Beba Tales, if I remember correctly. Let me make sure I'm saying this right. So, and it's in the thread that I just shared. Um, folk tales of the Beba people, if I remember correctly. And she basically goes into the, the, the depth of all of this, you know, why the girl married, how she chose to go about things and what happens to her. And in her, in her, in Juliana Makuchi's telling of the story, um, the girl, the person is a wizard, right? And marries him and, carries her to his house far away from his parents. And then in the in the evening, him and his friends gather and they're preparing to eat her. And then she gets the help from a hawk and a toad who, you know, help her run away. And she has to cross a river and do all these things. 
In another version of the story from Cameroon, um, the, the, the Suto is a boa constrictor, actually a snake, and he has borrowed body parts, you know, reconstructed himself with these different body parts. And of course, as they are leaving, he has to give back these body parts. And this, this idea of borrowed body parts shows up in many, many stories. It shows up in the Cameroonian version. It shows up in the Chadian version. It shows up in the Nigerian version. And just so it's not, you know, me going on and on and on, I'm going to read The Maiden Konar, which is... Actually, you know what? Let me read an excerpt from the Palm Wine Drinker first. And then we'll talk about this idea of, you know, marrying a strange person. But then that will segue into the other reason why this story is told, which I find it very interesting because it's the, the Chadian version and the Mende version aligned, the, the Hajarai Chad version and the Mende Sierra Leone version align on that theme. And if you know where Sierra Leone and Chad are on the African continent, they are so far apart. So it's interesting that these are the two cultures that have this similar theme. So first, let's look at the story from the perspective of marrying a strange, you know, random person that shows up. And what's interesting is that in um, in the palm wine drinker, this is not the main storyline. This is something that he encounters, you know, in the in the course of in the course of his ramblings in the underworld, right? And it is a, the story of a woman, and. If I remember correctly, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up. It was the daughter of the one of the headmen in the village that he came to. But she married this creature that was called the Complete Gentleman. And in his telling, in Amos Tutiola fashion, and if you've read the book, you know what I mean. He has a very interesting way of telling the story. He says he was a beautiful, complete gentleman. He dressed with the finest and most costly clothes, and all the parts of his body were completed. He was a tall man but stout. As this gentleman came to the market on that day, if he, had, if he had been an article or animal for sale, he would have been sold for at least 2,000 pounds. As this complete gentleman came to the market on that day, and at the same time this lady saw him in the market, she did nothing more than to ask him where he was living. But this fine gentleman did not answer her or approach her at all. But when she noticed that the fine or complete gentleman did not listen to her, she left her articles and began to watch the movements of the complete gentleman about the market, and she left her articles unsold. By and by, the market closed for the day, and when the people in the market were returning to their destinations, the complete gentleman was also returning to his own. But as this lady was following him about the market all the while, she saw him when he was returning to his destination as others did, and she followed him. She followed the complete gentleman to an unknown place, but as she was following the complete gentleman along the road, he was telling her to go back or not to follow him, but the lady did not listen to what he was telling her. And when the complete gentleman had tired of t telling her not to follow him or to go back to her town, he left her to follow him. Do not follow the unknown man's beauty. They had traveled about 12 miles away from that market. They left the road on which they were traveling and started to travel inside an endless forest in which only all the terrible creatures were living. As they were traveling around this endless forest, then the complete gentleman in the market that the lady was following began to return the hired parts of his body to the owners, and he was paying them rentage money. When he reached where he had hired the left hood, he pulled it out and gave it to the owner and paid him, and they kept going. When they reached the place where he hired the right foot, he pulled it out and gave it away to the owner and paid for the rent. Now both feet had returned to the owner, so he began to crawl along on the ground. 
By that time, that lady wanted to go back to her town or her father, but the terrible and curious creature, or the complete gentleman, did not allow her to return or go back to her town or her father. And he said, I had told you not to follow me before we branched into this endless forest, which belongs only to terrible creatures. But when I became a half-bodied, incomplete gentleman, now you want to go back. Now that cannot be done. You have failed. Even you, now, you haven't seen anything yet. Just follow me. When they went furthermore, then they reached where he hired the belly, ribs, chest, etc. And he pulled them all out and gave them to the owner and paid for the rentage. Now this gentleman or terrible creature remained only with a head and both arms with his neck. And by that time he could not crawl as before, but only went jumping on as if a bullfrog. And this lady was soon faint for this fearful creature whom she was following. But when the lady saw every part of this complete gentleman in the market was paired or hired, and he was returning them to the owners, she really began to try all her efforts to return to her father's town, but she was not allowed by this fearful creature at all. And so it goes on and on. He returns the arms and ends up a skull and takes her to his village and the, the co-skulls want to kill him and it turns into this whole drama and she has to be rescued. And if you notice a strange rhythm to the, the, the English language used in this book, that's because Emos Tujola is, um, if I remember correctly, the first um, African person to publish an English language novel. And this book caused a bit of a scuffle because, you know, the African writers back in the day were like, oh, this is nonsense. What kind of English is this man writing? But really, he was, you know, ahead of his time, you know, taking African folklore and telling them in the way that Africans spoke English at the time. That's the thing that people missed. He wasn't trying to tell, you know, a story to British standards. He was telling the story based on the kinds of English that African people spoke at the time. And that's what made his book unique. And that's what is being recognized now and appreciated. The same way as you'll find many African writers now not bothering to translate African languages. In my book, I use um, uh, uh, sayings and proverbs in the traditional African languages, but I don't necessarily translate them. I weave the translations into the context so you, you can pick that out, but I don't you know, put anything in italics or anything like that. You also find many African writers now who write in pidgin, which is the, the, the version of English that is spoken across a lot of, of, of West um, Africa and the English-speaking countries. And you'll find people writing in Swahili. You'll find people writing in, um, in Zulu and Shona and all the different languages. And I see this as a sort of saying, hey, we have our stories. We have our languages in which we've been telling these stories. And even if we use English, we're going to use the English that we speak and you guys are going to be okay with it. And Amos Tutorial was a pioneer in this in this regard. So anyway, that's the, the Yoruba version, right? And um, but then in this story as well, I see you, Laura. In this this version of the story, it's a similar story that is told in the Agolo song, which is in the thread that's shared by the Yorubanese page. So similar theme, a girl who, you know, was beautiful and everything, and you know, got carried away. So what's, what's noteworthy is that the guy was telling her to go back. Right? He tried to dissuade her and she was like, no, where you go, I will go. So she insists and she follows. And this that theme of him trying to dissuade her shows up in this story. It shows up in the Mende story. But it doesn't show up so much in the Cameroonian version of the story that I was told. Right, This guy wanted her to go with him so he doesn't dis dissuade her in any way. And it doesn't show up either in the Chad version of the story. So there is there is this interesting twist that shows up, and honestly, I'm not sure why, um, but just wanted to put that out there. Laura, I see your hand up. 
Yeah, I was just going to say the um, the book for a Nancy book club this week. It's not a strange suitor book, but we did Me Anne and the Magical Serpent like a couple weeks ago, which was a a strange suitor. But this week it's called Head, Body, Legs, and it's a uh, uh, Dan folktale from Liberia. And it's like the opposite of this body coming apart. It's about a body coming together. So anyway, it was so eerie hearing you talk about, you know, when you end up with the head and two arms and the leg. That's just what happens in the uh, Liberian folktale for this week, but coming the other direction. So the head gets the arms, then it gets a leg and, and eventually, but, they, but they're attached wrong. You know, because they they don't know what position they should be in, what's going to be the optimal design for the final body. But anyway, um, it, it was just such a great coincidence that you picked that one. Fun, fun. And, you know, now that you mention it, I'm sure someone out there with, you know, deep insight into these cultures will probably have a way to make sense of these, you know, disembodied body part, you know, theme that shows up in so many different ways, right? whether it's being put together or it's borrowed parts that have to be given back. Um, my, my take on it um, from the perspective of the suitor, you know, giving things back is especially if we're looking at it from the, the perspective of, you know, someone who your family doesn't know. It's basically this person showing up with riches, with virtue, with promises. You don't know that this person is really who they say they are, you know, so with them, showing up with things that they don't really have, it's even more evidence for for why they have all these procedures that have to be in place to verify, check people's families and do all of that. But um, that's that's an interesting opposite to the story, you know, the, the putting together. And now I want to dig into that some more. But thanks for bringing that up. I, I love making these connections because now a whole new world a whole new world and it also just you know if you're if you're an african writer who does horror you know especially body horror type stories you just you have so much to work with (laughs) because some of these stories like in 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 some versions of of the 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 mende story you know it's pretty graphic you know the the woman ends up dying you know with her child like it's it gets a little crazy anyway lots to work with lots to work with so you we have the the nigerian version right in Chola. And the, the theme seems to be heavy on don't marry a stranger. But what's interesting about the Chadian uh, version is that it seems that the Chadian version, but also the Mende version, it seems to be a commentary on excess sexual you know, appetite, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I'm going to read the story of Konara and you guys will understand what I'm talking about. So the maiden Konara, and this is a story from the Hajarai people in Chad. Konara was a young maiden. One day, a wonderfully handsome man came to her father's farmstead. He was, invent- he was invited to spend the night, and one of the huts was placed at his disposal. Konara immediately fell in love with him. They took millet beer to his hut, and Konara told her father, I want to drink with a stranger. Do you know him? No. No, drink with him if you want, her father said. So Konara went to the stranger's hut and drank millet beer with him. Food was prepared for the stranger and Konara told her father, I want to eat with the stranger. Eat with him if you want to, her father said. So Konara took the girl to the stranger's hut. They ate, they chatted, and they laughed, for the stranger was a most entertaining man. Do you want to lie with me? He asked her at last. Yes. He took off his garment and Konara let her loincloth fall. They lay down on the bed naked. 
their union took place with such force that the bed collapsed. Conara screamed, and it sounded as though someone had run a knife into her. The crash and the scream awakened her father. He was worried. He got up and went to his guest hut. Has anything happened? He inquired. The termites have eaten the bed, the stranger informed him. It collapsed as I lay down on it. Have you a mat? Yes, I will sleep on the mat. Konara's father was satisfied and returned to his hut. Konara and the stranger unrolled the mat. They lay down on it and carried on with their fierce union until they fell asleep from exhaustion. The following morning, the stranger prepared to leave. I want to go with him, Konara said to her father. Go with him if you want to. He gave her a goat and he gave her millet and spices and everything that is needed to prepare gruel. Konara left with the stranger. They had walked some distance when they met the snake. Give me back my neck, the snake said to the stranger. He gave the snake his beautiful neck and was left with a short, fat, ugly one. They went on and came upon a tree. Give me back my fruit, demanded the tree. The stranger gave the tree his teeth and it turned into white fruit and he was left with big, yellow teeth. The handsome stranger was now ugly. Konara thought of the indescribable pleasure the stranger had given her and so she remained with him. Do you know this place? The stranger asked her after they had gone some distance. Yes, I used to gather leaves and roots here with my sister. And so they went on. Do you know this place? Asked the stranger. Yes, Konara nodded. They went on. They were now quite far from Konara's village. Do you know this place? Asked the stranger. No, I have never come this far. Give me the goat, the stranger said. I'm going to eat it. My father gave me the goat so that I'll have meat to put in your grill when I cook for you, Konara objected. But she was afraid and added quickly, that if you want to eat it now, go ahead. The stranger killed the goat. Konara pulled a few hairs out of the goat's hide and hid them in her garment. The stranger ate the goat. Then he became a wizard. He wanted to eat Konara. He seized her, but the goat hair spoke. Man doesn't eat human flesh. So the wizard tried to find goat's hairs, the goat's hairs, but Konara had hidden them in her private parts. Since a man doesn't touch a woman's private parts, the wizard couldn't find the goat's hair. They went on and came to a hillock of termites. The wizard set Konara down on the hillock and sat facing her. He watched her face for a while and then addressed her. What do you see, Konara? Everything is blurred as in a fog. The wizard continued to watch her, then addressed her again. What do you see, Konara? I can see, but not clearly. Everything is still blurred. The wizard watched her still longer and addressed her again. What do you see, Konara? Now I can see clearly. Konara was now a witch. She and her man came to the village of the wizard, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter. As the child grew older, she was often left behind while Konara and her husband went on manhunts. Konara had been eating human flesh with great relish since she had become a witch. One day, they went to the Konara's village and ate everyone, even her own father. Her uncle was the only man left in the village who managed to escape, and he swore to put an end to the couple's crimes. He took a sharp throwing knife, mounted his horse, and rode to the, rode to the wizard's village. Konara and her husband were in the bush when he arrived, and he found their daughter alone in the house. Save yourself, uncle, implored the child, for she was a good child. My parents will be back soon, and they will eat you if they find you here. They have eaten everyone in the village, even Konara's father. I will stay. The uncle was determined. Konara and the wizard finally returned from the bush. Konara immediately seized her uncle's horse, but he sliced her finger off with his throwing knife. The wizard and the witch picked up the sliced off finger and ate it on the spot. The uncle raised his throwing knife again and killed Konara and her husband. 
Then he chopped both bodies into small pieces, burned them, and poured water on the ashes until there was nothing left of them. In order to save the child from the spell her parents had put from the spell of her parents, her uncle cooked tamarind leaves in the great pot and washed her in the brew. Then he took her to his village and treated her as his own daughter, since his wife had also escaped the ravenous bear. They had many children, and the village was soon populated again. What do you guys think of this story? Because the first time I read it, I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. I'm honest, if I'm being honest. I'll tell you, Disney is not going to be making that into a movie. I know, right? <laughs> But there is something, there is something so different. So when, when I rewrote this story, right, my question, the, the, the question I was trying to ask myself, you know, as, you know, with the whole story was what was going through Konara's mind, right? Because in this case, she wholeheartedly threw herself into the thing, <laughs> right? Starting with the fact that she wanted this guy and she, there were no if, but so ands about it. You know, she made her intentions quite clear. And she followed the guy. And what I find interesting is how, you know, clearly this guy was a monster of some kind. But she was thinking about the, you know, the pleasure that she had with the guy. And she followed him and she, you know, launched into, into her fun, like just embracing everything the guy was doing. And in the end, you know, it's not the typical story of the woman who, you know, discovers that the guy is a monster and then runs back to her family. Oh, no, no, no. She entered the thing power, power, as we see in Cameroon. So that's what I found really interesting about the story. And that's like, that's the, that's the question I play with in my retelling. Like, why, why did she make the choices that she make and she made? And of course, I included elements of her Jerai culture and her daughter, you know, plays a very a much a much bigger role in my retelling than she does in this story. And I tried to make it a little bit more complex, um, getting into, you know, Konara's psyche and everything. But in, in the story, that's why my retelling is titled Mother Monster, because she embraces the role. You know, she doesn't make any apologies about it. So, but definitely, this is this is not something Disney would be remaking. I'll tell you who would do. There's this Netflix series called um, Love, Death and Robots, or Love, Sex and Robots, or something. And... I think this story would be perfect for it. Is it love, sex, and robots? Love, death, and robots. So it's like an animated anthology type situation where they tell all these strange, weird little stories. I think this this particular story, my retelling in particular, would be would be a perfect short animated film for it. But you know, a girl can hope. Laura. Well. I think I've already told you this before. Your version of Kanara just blew my mind. It's my favorite of your stories because it was a case where when you got into her mind, everything seemed different. You know, so it wasn't just like a kind of, you know, looking at the story from a different point of view. Like when you, you know, put something in first person or, or, or fo focus on someone's psychology, it like really changed the story in a profound way. And, and, I liked your version better. Like the folktale is great. It's a great folktale, but your version is amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It, it's the first story in the book, the very first, so the very first story you read. And, you know, I, 
I thought of this story as a bit of a reclaiming, right? Because when you read a lot of these stories about the strange suitor, the girl is always cast as this hapless creature who doesn't know what she wants, right? This airhead. <laughs> and perhaps I'm being a bit harsh here. But she's cast as this, you know, materialistic, um, shallow airhead who just wants a rich guy and doesn't care what she wants. But in Konar's case, she was pretty clear about what she wanted. You know, she went after what she wanted she didn't ever make any apologies for it even though she died and in my retelling she does die but you know her her, her daughter carries on her legacy in a, an interesting twist you know so buy the book read the story it's available as an ebook so <laughs> go go read it but i i appreciate that you you enjoyed the story laura it, it truly was one of my favorites to tell it truly was um and konara is b i have a uh, konara is one of the characters that i illustrated and um, I just saw your question, Mukuka, how was her father was so cooperative? There is actually a very good answer to that. But let me find this picture of Konara because the artist, the illustrator did an amazing job. Like, I was so happy. Oh, no, I don't have that on here. You have got to be kidding me. All right, hold on. I have to find Konara, you guys. But... Uh, oh my goodness. All right, well, we can only see Konara from the merchandise, I think. But the artist did an amazing job. Um, he captured like the very essence of what I imagined Konara would be. And you can get Konara as a bag. Sorry, you guys, I am going off into a little bit of a rhapsody here but it's it's very justified i promise to answer your question um Kuka, so the hajarai people right um now they have been islamicized so they they have a very conservative culture from what i could tell but um when at the time when these stories were recorded and if you read more of the stories in the collection you'll get a better sense of this they had a pretty open culture, right? For example, they had this festival called the Nogyo Festival. And what happened during the Nogyo? Young men and women in the village will get together. I actually talk about the Nogyo Festival in, um, in, the store, in the Mythological African Zip Dive episode I did about African sexuality. So young men and women in the village will get together. It was like a fertility festival and they would just have sex. <laughs> that was it, right? Uh, young unmarried men and women, whether married or unmarried, their husbands were not allowed to be there. You know, so women had a fair amount of sexual agency, which I think is what was at play here because her father, you know, had his reservations. You know, his first question was, do you know this guy? You know, what's going on here? And then he was like, you know what? Whatever. Um, in my retelling, I, you know, put a bit of context around it but i think what underlies this this story is the idea that the women in that culture at that time had a fair amount of sexual agency that you know is not is not typical to a lot of african communities but there are some african communities where this is the case and if my if my associations are right the hajarai are um similar to the these people's names always pop right out of my head. And I remember the term, but this is not the, the polite term to refer to them. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, they are the people who do the colorful faces, the guys 
for the festival. Oh my God, the name just popped right out of my head. Wodabe. Their culture is similar to Wodabe culture. And in Wodabe culture, those young men paint their faces like that because they are trying to attract women, right? They are trying to attract wives or lovers. And in that cultural context, the women, whether married or not, could take on lovers and, you know, have these relationships. And it was, you know, a thing that happened in their community. So I, I think that her father, uh, Konara's father, was, you know, chill about things um, precisely because of that. But you are absolutely right to say, oh, your, you know, African senses are just reeling at the idea that this is so sexually permissive because that was absolutely not the case in other cultures. For example, in the Mende culture where this story is told as a cautionary tale against sexual, um, what they consider promiscuity. Because in amongst the Mende people, you know, the women, are part, women tend to be, well, as a woman, you're expected to be um, inducted into the Sunday society. And Sunday Sunday is a women's society and they have very strict codes of conduct how you're supposed to carry yourself as a woman and so if you're a woman who just you know gave of yourself sexually like that you're operating outside of the bounds of what was expected of you so if you read um the mende versions of the story and i can read just a short excerpt from from um, roger abraham's book it starts with this with this um, um comment on the fact that this um this girl was operating out of the bounds of what was expected of her so they say, behold, this girl from long ago, she was a great fornicator. She continued fornicating for a long time. Then they initiated the Sunday society in that town. Spirits came from the big forest. They came to this dancing place. And one of the spirits was named Pana. And that spirit came and he spoke words of love to her. She, accept, she accepted these loving words, but she said nothing of it to her parents. The spirit slept that night. Then at daybreak, they begged to leave to go. We are going tomorrow, they said. She and her companions, there were five, went with these fellows. They accompanied them. Now they went with them. And then the story continues with the guys, you know, saying, hey, this place that we are going, you know, maybe you should not come. And all the other four girls said, okay, we'll go back. And this one girl was like, she literally, <laughs> she literally says, your dying place is my sleeping place. No matter where you go, I must go. And she follows this guy all the way to the end and ends up dead because he has to sleep for one year. And she says, okay, I will stay with you even if you want to sleep for one year. And then he locks himself in this house and falls asleep. And she sits there with her baby. She didn't have food. She didn't have water. And eventually she died. So it's in, in, in that context, it sounds to me like this story was used more as a caution against, you know, unbridled sexuality, which as if you can imagine, if it's in a context where you had, women had a fair amount of sexual liberty and then this new way of looking at things arrived where the sexuality of women was being put within constraints you would have stories like this to say hey this is not what you should be doing um meanwhile in another context it's more about hey be careful who you marry because if we don't know the people then we can't help you when you know shit hits the fan so but there is and you might find this interesting Mukukam, a version of the story from zambia and it's called The Story of the Girl Who Married a Lion. And my, my take on this, um, and I'm open to be completely wrong here, is that this is a, a commentary on clans. So, you know, different clans had different totems, you know, lion and, you know, buffalo and this and that. And this was a commentary on, you know, someone marrying into the lion clan when they shouldn't have. And, but totally open to be wrong. This is just me, you know, speculating. But we have a little bit of time, so I'm going to read that as well. And if you read the thread of stories that I shared, 
Um, this story is in there as well. It's you can read it for free on sacredtext.com. So, a lion went to a village of human beings and married. And the people thought that maybe it was a lion, it was a man and not a wild creature. And in due course, the couple had a child. And sometime after this, the husband proposed that they should visit his parents. And so they set out, accompanied by the wife's brother. At the end of the first day's journey, they all camped in the forest, and the husband cut down thorn bushes and made a kraal, a mitanda, after which he went away, saying that he was going to catch some fish in the river. When he was gone, the brother said to the sister, he has built this kraal very badly. And so he took his axe and cut down many branches with which to strengthen the weak places. Meanwhile, the husband had gone to seek out his lion relations, and when they asked him, how many animals have you killed? He replied, two and a young one. When darkness fell, he became a huge male lion and led the whole clan with a contingent of hyenas to attack his camp. Those inside heard the stealthy footfalls and sat listening. The lions hurled themselves on the barrier trying to break through, but it was too strong and they fell back wounded with the thorns. He who by day had been the husband growled and the, growled, and the baby inside the crowd responded and the mother sang, The child has bothered me with crying. Watch the dance. Walk with the stoop watch the dance. And the were lion's father, quite disgusted, said, you have brought us a man who has built a strong cow. We cannot eat him. And as the day was beginning to break, they all retired to the forest. So the story continues, and I just want to make sure we have space to talk about things. But the story continues, and they try to kill these people, and they don't succeed, and, you know, it evolves, and eventually they escape, you know, unscathed. But my, my instinct here is that this is a commentary on clan relations, right? And I don't know. What do you think, Pukuka? If you can still hear us. I think we may have lost you. I see a 100%, so I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> on faith but these this is one of the yes yes we can hear you now the named after the animals um the local names are like Avena for the clan of the crocodile um yeah and the other names so i i entirely relate with your analogy to to suggest that um, it was um relating to clans within the within the tribe it's very common especially in my tribe we stand out for 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 such naming and um no problems if you don't have you know deep analysis on this are there um because i i remember and i don't remember exactly where i read it but something along the lines of there are people from certain clans who, because of their totem animal, couldn't marry or necessarily freely associate with people from other clans. And we don't need to go into the underlying reasons, just an understanding that this, this is something that occurs that could you know, get in the way of relationships, marriages, and things like that. Is that am I reading this correctly? Yes, indeed. Also, um, there are certain um, relations that were forbidden, mostly arising from um, rifts between clans. Um, especially like um, from my tribe, the, the tribe starts from um, 
a succession dispute that by which one kills another and then one reigns. So the disputes along that line resulted into rifts which um, could not be crossed with um, with marriage as as a linkage. Isn't entirely correct. Right, right. No, thank you for providing that context. Because, for example, I found it very interesting that in this story, the lions came back with hyenas. And, you know, there is there is the part of my brain that is reading this as, you know, a fantastical tales with animals and stuff like that. But there is another part of my brain that is thinking this was probably an alliance of two peoples who decided to go after, you know, another person. And, you know, this is that, that history being told in a highly... Um, metaphorical, allegorical way, you know, as we would do on the African continent. So um, it is one of my frustrations, and I guess it can't be helped, that for many of these stories, um, the, the, the underlying context to things, I just, I will not get them right, because I can read, and something I found out while writing this book is that, yes, you'll see things in books and research papers, but they are not always, you know, fully reflective of the lived experience of people. Some ideas might be just so completely outdated that the people they refer to might not even recognize it for what it is. Or it might have been a complete misunderstanding of the situation. This is especially the case when um, the person who documented the story was not from the culture. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, I see your hand, Laura. Uh, when um, So The Sacred Spring is a story from the Ibibio people in Nigeria, and I wrote that out in the book as a poem. And then I thought, hey, the Ibibio people have a really good music-making poetic tradition, so it would be nice to get this story translated into Ibibio. So I reached out to um, Edison Obong, who is from the Ibibio people, and he translated the whole poem, and we actually had a Twitter space where he did a reading and everything, and it was amazing. But then I noticed in his translation and you guys, I have learned so much about publishing a book. Honestly, I don't know if I'll ever like do what I did in the time period again because like I feel like someone opened my brain and pumped it full of things. But after everything had happened, I think I'd even released the first version of the ebook. I was reading through the Ibiobio version again and I noticed two different spellings for one of the women's names. So in some cases, it was spelled one way. In some cases, it was spelled another way. So I kept thinking, okay, is this a typo or what is going on here? Or is it referring to something else? Because I don't read, I don't know the language. So maybe there's something I'm missing. So I reached back to Edison. And I was like, hey, can you help me out here? Is this a typo or what? And he was basically like, well, this other way that I write it, that's how we actually say it, you know. And I guess in the course of the translation, he just naturally slipped into the rhythm of the language as the people use it. So we had this moment where it was like, okay, do we take the word of this British ethnographer or do we take the word of someone who is from the culture? And I was like, no brainer. I'm going to go with the word of someone from the culture because that's, I mean, it belongs to them. So when we made that decision, it was like, oh, by the way, then you probably want to change the name <laughs> of this other person because that's not really how we say it. This is how we say it. So thankfully, at that time, I hadn't yet sent the book to print. You know, small delays turned out working in your favor. Um, so I had to go through the whole story and change all the names and change everything. But that's, that's something you find out that, you know, what you read in a book or in a research paper might not really, you know, get to the heart of the matter or might be a misreading of the issue. And that's, 
me not coming from a lot of these cultures, that's something I had to make peace with, you know, that there's probably things that, you know, my interpretation, my take on them is not right. But then that's the, the beauty of storytelling. Last, last, as they say, as they say in, in, in Nigeria and other West African countries, last, last is a story. So you have that creative, that creative uh, license, that margin of error that you can operate within. But it's, it's something worth noting. It's something worth remembering. Something worth keeping in mind, and speaks to why I think it's so important that we we look at these stories, we examine them again, we try to understand them again, and if we need to, you know, reframe and discard. Um, but let me let me stop talking. Give Laura a chance to talk here because her hand has been up for a while. Go ahead, Laura. That actually worked out perfect because where you ended up was exactly what I was going to say. Is that these stories are constantly getting reframed. Like, for example, stories travel a lot from India to Eastern Africa and then spread, you know, across especially Southern Africa. So in India, there's this very popular folktale about the woman who married a tiger. And it fits in so many ways with this strange suitor type of story and her brothers rescue her or else she dies. There are lots of variations. And I think it's just fascinating, the idea that when that story arrives from India and, say, comes to cultures where you have uh, these these clan animals, you've got this new storytelling potential that didn't exist before. You know, before it was just like, what is the most savage, dangerous, wild animal? Well, it's a tiger, so she marries a tiger. Um, but here, you know, if you have a complex kind of social map together with the animals, you can tell the story in a new way that resonates with this new cultural context. So stories are always changing as they move from one context to another. And when you bring stories to your context, Helen, and your readers, they're going to change again. And, and, and I think the main thing is just to be mindful of it and try to explain to people mm-hmm. what, what's going on insofar as, as, as you can see it happening. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting you say that, Laura, because even in the, the versions of this story, the Mende versions of the story that Roger Abrahams captured, there's reference to Europe, you know, in, in one one of the tellings of it, you know, the storytellers, because it's okay, the context is that it's a competition. You have these three women who are kind of rivals in the community. They are known rivals, but because the expectation is that the women conduct there, there is a standard of behavior that many women are expected to hold to, their rivalry plays out in storytelling competitions where they try to outdo each other in, in you know, more creative storytelling. So each person, their assignment then is to be as original, as creative, as, you know, expressive in their storytelling as possible. So one person tells a story and then the other next person who tells the story is trying to outdo that person. So as you read, you know, storyteller one, storyteller two, storyteller three, and they are named in, in the book, you can just see the story ballooning, right? Different aspects coming in. There is like references to, oh, the, the, the gifts that this suitor brought, they are gifts that only could be brought from Europe, <laughs> you know, and things like that. And that's what that's what happens with stories. And that's something that um, I have to keep in mind as I write to say, hey, yes, you want to be true to the original, you want to be faithful to the cultures, but there is also, you know, license in storytelling. But there is also the idea that you don't you don't misrepresent people, right? You don't take creative license to the point where, you know, people are not able to see themselves in the stories that, that you know, are, are of their cultures. They're, they're not able to recognize the story, the, the story in the context in which it's told. And that can be, that can be, that can be an interesting balance to walk. 
That can be an interesting balance to work, especially if we're looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, something that's difficult, right? A difficult topic. For example, one of the stories I tell, and this, this is not a retelling, this is an original story, but it's based on a particular people's culture, and it revolves around the topic of, um, you know, girlhood, womanhood, abortions, um, the main character in the story is a, a, a transgender person because in this culture, you know, trans people were known and accepted and incorporated into community as mediums and healers. And it, it went into some pretty difficult things like the way girls who got, married, who got pregnant before their, um, their rites of passage into womanhood, how they were treated. And that was a very difficult topic for me because just my modern sensibilities were offended on all levels. But I had to find a way to tell the story that, you know, wasn't just glorying in the sensationalism of it all, but, you know, communicated the, the, the difficulty of it, but in a way that, you know, makes people appreciate what just what was going on in these people's minds. So absolutely right. You get some license, but you, you have to tread, you know, a careful path so you don't, you don't mess things up. <laughs> As I like to think about it, you don't mess things up. But that's that's the joy of storytelling. You get you get to explore these creative tensions, and you know sometimes you surprise yourself with what you come out with. Like when I was writing the Kunara story, you know, it was okay. This is the Hadjarai people. This is their culture. This is this is what's going on. But this is Kunara, and this is her own personal story. And how how far how far can I push this push this? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? How far can I? take this storyline without it just not being reflective of the Hajarai experience at all. You know, at what point does this become Helen of 2023 projecting? And that was that was an interesting tension to, to explore. I'm hoping that someone out there who is from Hajarai culture, who is familiar, um, reads the story and, you know, has something to say about it because there, there's a lot that I... There were some cultures where you, I just, I found so much information and I could write, you know, detailed more with more cultural context and then some were just difficult and the Hadjarai people were, were one of them of course their modern their more recent history is very difficult they were caught up in a lot of chads um civil uh chad no chad yeah in chad civil conflicts and you know it's it's just been very very difficult for them in modern times so there was there is that that idea that okay just be aware of the context that people are working with and what they might or might not have um, access to and knowledge of. So, but anyway, I'll stop rambling. I feel like I've been rambling this whole time. Uh, Laura? Well, it's a great topic to ramble about. And I just wanted to throw something in um, in case we got to the end of the hour and I didn't have a chance to say it. There are some stories out there too of um, women who are uh, uh, imposters. You know, so a man who married a lion woman, they, they mm -hmm. aren't as common as these strange suitor stories and they have a very different kind of slant, obviously, because the sexual tension, the family relations, it's all different, but, but there are some stories out there where, where it's flipped and it's the man who gets married to um, some kind of, you know, spirit or animal or not a woman. True, true. And while, as you were talking, the main one I can think about is uh, it's from, I think it's in Devilly people where this girl is going off to marry and she runs into this creature and decides to help the creature. And then the creature basically tricks her 
out of her fine clothes and jewelry and everything and tricks her to get off her her mount and the creature takes her place and then they arrive and you know the people are like but we were promised a very beautiful girl what is this thing that has shown up but you know out of curtsy they didn't say anything um and then whole drama ensues. I think I've written about this on the Zoological Africans. Laura, let's um, hear what you, you, you want, want to say while I try to track down this thread, because I think I've written about this story before. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, those usurper stories are really cool, too, where like a bride is on her way and then, you know, someone else shows up. The one I was thinking of is a story from Angola about a man. He's the chief of the tribe. He marries a woman who's actually a lion and, and she's in communication with the lions in the bush and they're going to kill all the people in the village. But it's the um, the man's son from another wife who sees the identity of, of, of this woman and tries to get his father to believe him. So it's, you know, it's like the relative in the stories about the women who marry someone dangerous, the the son in that case mm-hmm. is trying to tell his father and finally does persuade him and you know, everything ends happily for the humans in that one. But it's um it's got some great scenes in it that are really dramatically well told in the version that I've read, which I think was in Chatelaine. I don't remember, but it's it's from Angola. Cool, cool. You know, you guys, I think at one point I might attempt a volume two. <laughs> of these these stories of retellings because I now that you've talked about it I want to write a story about these impersonator creatures just to get into the psychology of that that would be that would be fun and uh yes I found the thread um it's I put it in the chat and it's from the Ndebele people yep so read the thread enjoy it so it's not only the guys in the story who are impersonators the women are impersonators as well so we have just about four minutes to the end of this session. And uh, thank you guys for coming to hang out and explore this topic with us. Um, it's, it's really a very common um, theme that shows up a lot and it explores a lot of the, the undertones of you know, what people value in terms of marriage and relationships and sexuality and all of that. And I hope I did it justice. This is definitely something which... Um, I want to see more commentary around, especially in the modern dating context, right? Because this is we didn't even go in that direction during this session. Because now a lot of these rules around who you can marry, you know, they are not as tightly enforced as before. Um, whereas before in these stories, you know, the suitors coming with, with you know, gifts and extravagant gifts was a cause for concern. Nowadays, in many cultures, if you don't show up with the right amount of gifts and stuff, you know, especially if you're courting a girl, if you don't present yourself a certain way, you're not even taken seriously as, as a suitor. So that, that might be an, an interesting creative tension to explore, you know, how, how these stories are showing up and how they might be influencing um, the dating choices people make or the ways in which people have departed from the the wisdom in them and is it justified that you know people have moved on from these things you know should we still be letting clan tensions and the like influence our our decisions in this day and age so story for another time i hope but uh thank you guys for hanging out i try to keep these things at an hour so that you know we we have a rich focus discussion but we don't let it drag out for too long so please by the Runaway Princess and other stories. Um, I really enjoyed writing the book. Um, I think you really like the stories. 
and I got my first review today, which I'm very excited about, you guys. So um, the ebook is available on Amazon. It's also available on the uh, Mythological Africans websites. There's also merch. Um, I did a character focus, a couple of characters. Um, and my, my intention with this is to make these names more known, right? If we can have Disney princess merch and stuff like that, then let these be household names too. So this is my little effort in that direction. And I, um, a percentage of the proceeds from sales um, from the Mythological Afghan store for the Runway Princess goes to support a project which is very dear to my heart. It's a project by the Mendem Foundation. It's a Cameroonian organization which provides uh, re, um, washable sanitary pads to girls in Cameroon. So it provides information about you know, people's periods, washable sanitary pads. And part of the process is they pay women to make these pads. So it's providing these pads to the girls, but also you know, paying the women who make the pads. So proceeds from the sales go towards that. And um, yeah, buy the book. Tell your friends about it and i'll be here next friday same time to talk about a topic that i'm still not sure of but i believe it will be fun so thank you guys again i i really really appreciate you making time today and hope you have a great weekend bye everyone